Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre, and today we have a great episode. I have on the podcast Laura de Vries. She's a researcher at the Mr. Hans von Mirlo Foundation. She focuses her research on technical developments in relation to progressive liberal values. I invited Laura for us to go over the book that she wrote on algorithms and local government. This is an important conversation. Laura and I go over some of the concerns about the use of this kind of tool in governance. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of October. I'm here with Laura DeVries. Laura, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, it's good to have you here. And we're going to talk about a publication that you authored with a colleague of yours called Algorithms and Local Government, Opportunity for Everyone, which is a very important topic. And you write beautifully on the document. So congratulations for that. Very, very easy to understand and very impactful on the, for example, what you introduce regarding what happens in the Netherlands. But in this conversation, we're going to go a little more generic. You present how to understand algorithms and how they influence what is called just society. And then you do talk about three liberal concepts to understand this relationship, equality, freedom, rule of law. So this is a great beginning for our conversation. Tell us why are these important? Well, first of all, thank you for the wonderful compliments. I'm very glad that you enjoyed reading the book. Um, I also think it's a very important topic. And I'm very happy that uh, the intention, attention that is uh, the, this topic is ge uh, getting is actually increasing. So that uh, makes me very glad. So why this topic is important? Well, we, we see that algorithms, of course, can um, ha have great positive implications. Or computers can really help us to analyze very large data sets. And the power of computers is increasing very fast uh, so that provides us with the opportunity to analyze really large data sets, um, having great implications and great applications, but also uh, some threats. And I uh, linked in the book, I linked the use of algorithms with these, what I call social liberal values. I call, I, I mentioned three of them. Uh, first, the equality or equality of opportunity. Secondly, uh, freedom or self-determination. And third, the third was uh, the rule of law. And uh, yeah, I think those three are very important when, of course, they are also overlapping because many times if you sort of decrease people their self right to self-determination, mm -hmm. then Uh, most probably you're also limiting people their, uh, you know, equality of opportunity. So they're very much related. But uh, when I was studying the, these algorithmic applications, I just noticed that, uh, well, in many, many cases, the, the equality of opportunity, for instance, is limited, right? So as liberals, we think that people should have equal opportunity, in the, independent of, of, for instance, their gender identity, cultural background, sexuality, and other certain characteristics that would be called by John Rawls as uh, morally arbitrary, uh, by which, well, I interpret that as uh, those factors matter in practice, but should not matter, matter in an ideal situation or ideal society that we as social liberals should be striving for. And when we're 
looking at self-determination, then uh, I interpreted that as the possibility for an individual to develop oneself with uh, according to one's own will or vision and to live life the way someone wants to without being limited, for instance, by a government to being able to doing that. And of course, within certain boundaries, of course, such as not hurting other people. And this is, of course, a broad concept, but I think it's useful in understanding the positive and negative consequences of algorithms. And the third is the rule of law. It's a quite abstract uh, value, perhaps, but uh, Montesquieu, a philosopher who lived between 1689 and 1755, initiated this concept of the trias politica, meaning the the separation of of three powers. So the legislative, the executive and judicial power. And in an ideal society, according to him, these three powers should be balanced. So not one of those branches should have extensive powers in comparison to the other two. And we also see uh, the last years that the use of algorithms or AI applications by governments, especially by the executive power, is increasing. Consequently, this balance is distorted. So this balance is uh, increasingly distort- distorted, making uh, basically making democratic control uh, on the use of algorithms very difficult. Yeah, so these are the three, uh, well, short to say, these are the three values that I think are very important. Indeed. And extra points for bringing John Rawls and Montesquieu to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. You do mention positive uh, aspects and we're going to go into them, but let's stay with this more of a danger and uh, something that we should be aware and working for. And one of them has to do with data by more than one data bias, design bias, social, economic and judicial predictions. Again, for our listeners, they should read the book from uh, Laura because you go into detail and you explain very well and you give practical examples. But let's uh, talk a little bit about this. Intuitively, I think people get there very easily. What is data bias? What is design bias and social, economic and judicial predictions and have machines doing this and then affecting uh, society and people's lives? But go a little more into detail, please. Well, one example that many people are currently aware of or getting aware, becoming aware of is that many artificial artificial intelligence systems are trained on biased data. So for instance, we know that facial recognition software is often only trained or uh, most often trained on pictures of white people with white faces. And this makes the software in many cases less reliable when it comes to identifying the faces of black and brown people. And uh, so there were already in the U.S., there were already many arrests of black people who were supposedly being identified with facial recognition software. But it turned out to be falsely uh, arrested because the system was completely biased. So this is a very to the point example of how systems are being trained on just biased data, meaning that the data is skewed or incorrect, uh, represent or leading to outcome that in which certain people with certain characteristics or certain groups are uh, being negatively affected. But there are many different also definitions of what bias actually means, because in psychology, bias refers mainly to prejudice. I also studied psychology, so that's why I well I learned that at university. But in statistics, it it sort of has a different connotation and also many different definitions. And I really like the definition of 
bias occurring when there is, uh, well, something obviously wrong in uh, the development of the, the AI tool or the system or the algorithm. Uh, but importantly, it leads to unfair results in which uh, people based on certain characteristics like uh, cultural background or gender are um, disproportionately negatively affected. I'm going to go into a little more detail about design bias. Yeah. Because design bias for uh, lay people like myself, we always think that there's the algorithm working, okay, the machine is learning and doing her thing, but there was someone behind it at the beginning of the process that told the machine, all right, this is what you have to do. This is the variables that I'm going to insert in a system so that you can do uh, your uh, calculations. So how prevalent and how much there is something wrong using the expression you just presented a minute ago, how much that happens when we're thinking about this kind of technology, the design bias, or are computer you know, engineers doing things and they're not even thinking about it? Like, for example, famous uh, Jurassic Park image. You guys were so worried about how to do it and you didn't even think about if you should do it. So what's your position on that? Oh, there are many uh, interesting things in those uh, couple of sentences. So for, for to start, I think it is very important that we do not only focus on the individual designer, right? Because prejudices or in more broadly spoken, uh, social inequality is not an individual problem. So it's not a problem. Uh, also not when we're looking at algorithmic applications that can be used by focusing merely on the, the designer, the individual behind the, the algorithm. And it's most of the time also not only one person working on algorithmic system. But I think it's what is important to understand is that we when you look at social or economic inequality in society and prejudice, uh, you know, different levels on which uh, inequality can uh, sort of become visible. Everybody has, you know, prejudices. Uh, and this is also it's also possible that, of course, a designer is sort of feeding the system with his or her own uh, uh, prejudices. Uh, but it's also possible, for instance, that the data that is being fed to the system is already biased because it's, for instance, uh, data on uh, criminal activity, but that criminal uh, activity data is already biased by, uh, you know, uh, for instance, police officers, you know, checking more often black and brown people than white people. So it's there are many different ways in which this system can become biased. But you mentioned, of course, this design bias, and I just want to, to mention one example of where that, uh, well, one interesting example of, of that uh, design bias, because yeah, so there was one uh, system used in the United States to calculate the risk for recidivy of people, you know, committing a crime again. And this system was, uh, it was also looked at uh, a the outcomes on a of a questionnaire. And in this questionnaire, uh, people were also asked about their uh, whether they had family members or any well, any of their friends or contacts that were in the past having being uh, you know checked or having contact with the police so for instance being arrested and the questionnaire also looked at their financial situation besides you know the the more <laughs> fundamental question uh, of whether we should you know um, 
judge people based on whether their family members were committed a crime in the past. It's also an, a, a question that black Americans, black and brown Americans, more often said yes to than white Americans. Of course, also due to many social and economic inequality that already existed. So this is and the feature in this so this is called feature bias, and the feature there would be the outcomes of the questionnaire. So what this means is that the algorithm, the outcome of the algorithm is that the chance of the algorithm being biased is really high because the questionnaire already is biased in this sense. So um, the outcome of the algorithm was actually that black and brown Americans more, um, were more often, twice as often, assigned a high risk um, recidive. Uh, compared to uh, white people. So this shows how, you know, bias can sort of creep into a system. And when it's being used, then it actually increases the the yeah, false extension of sentences for uh, people pr based on particular characteristics. Then it gets a little dystopian, this vicious cycle of feeding information and then information gets spit out and that also feeds the information. You do, for example, present the Allegheny family screening tool. And also in the Netherlands, you, uh, you talk about the crime anticipation system. And this leads me to another question about the dangers, which is social economic prediction and judicial predictions. So, Laura, is this now getting a little bit outside of the more of the technical and a little more into the societal is this something that we have to start getting used to it, which is to have yeah. a machine predicting if we're going to be successful in economics or be successful in social issues or if we're going to get arrested quite soon? So what, what's your take on this and with the experience you have in the Netherlands of, have, of seeing these uh, machines working in the field? Yeah, so I, th I think there's no escaping, you know, the use of algorithms and artificial intelligence in public decision making. And I think that's something we also shouldn't be striving for, mm -hmm. uh, because I think it's very important that we make use of new technologies to, you know, make our services more efficient and more and fairer. But then we that's what also, you know, what we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing on how can we increase the fairness of systems uh, so that we can actually decrease social and economic inequality, make our government system more, system more efficient, increase, you know, de democratic participation and actually focusing on you know, the problems that people are facing in their daily lives. But to start with this, uh, what you mentioned, the, the social, economical and judicial predictions, Virginia Eubanks, you already mentioned her uh, her book, Automating Inequality. She gives these sort of terrible examples of how uh, systems are designed and eventually uh, the, the use of these systems are increasing social and economic inequality. Uh, she actually coined the term poverty profiling in her book. So to systems and that profile and control, particularly people who already have very difficult financial situations. Uh, there was one system that was used in the Netherlands called system uh, risk uh, indication. Yeah, system risk indication. And that was being uh, sort of, well, the, the judge ruled that it was unlawful to use that system because it was against the, the European uh, Declaration of Human Rights, but also because it was 
probably stigmatizing and not respecting privacy. And this was a uh, system that was trying to calculate the risk of uh, fraud, uh, social benefit fraud. But it only looked at, you know, particular areas where people with uh, bicultural, many bicultural backgrounds live. In this system, there were this really large data sets of data on housing, dating, uh, data on uh, all kinds of income and fiscal uh, data, uh, identification data of gender, but also postal code uh, and so on. I think there were about 30 or thir yeah, 30 data or no, 16 data sets, types of data sets that were being combined and analyzed by the Ministry of Social Affairs. And that was being implemented on the regional or local level. And so this system is just this typical example of how, well, governments sort of make use of this data without thinking about how it affects people in the long run or immediately, but also in the long run. And whether, you know, we also have this sort of presumption of innocence. So you are innocent until, you know, proven guilty. And do we really want a government who already sort of treats people as if they are already guilty based on you know, what their house type of ho household looks like, you know, with how many people they live in a house. <laughs> I mean, that's that doesn't feel fair uh, or just. So I think we need to, I don't know, break this sort of negative chain and turn it around into something positive where we use technology for good and for, I know that's also very difficult and we can have, mm -hmm. you know, very long conversation about what that looks like, but we need to shift the mentality know to from what is good for government um, or for government predictions or processes or efficiency to what is fair and what do we want to do and what do we want to reach for society and for people so let's shift that mentality then you and you and i here algorithms are also a positive development and they're a very powerful tool and as you said very correctly so they'll keep getting even more and more powerful so you go into that in your book, and that is when thinking about liberal positions and thinking about policy making, what are the best ways to use these tools for better governance, for more freedom, more self-determination? So please get into that. Give us uh, some ideas on how people listen to uh, this podcast that may be, you know, themselves being associated to this process or they can have a, a direct relationship with this process how can we make this a better tool yeah so i mean you have different different levels in which you can uh, look at this so you can look at it from a technical perspective in which there are many techniques that are trying to make systems more fair so you have for instance this counterfactual fairness method that is quite new in which you try to, um, well, you add sort of the, these so-called sensitive variables like gender or ethnicity, and you put them in the system, but you try to, you change that variable, for instance, from male to female and see if the outcomes are different. And if the outcomes are different in a way that you do not want in the system or that you see as unfair or discriminatory, then that is something you can correct for in the model. So those techniques I think are very interesting developments that we should certainly pay attention to because I think that eventually we need to go towards a place where we 
you know, combine these uh, technical ways of addressing fairness with more, you know, political and uh, uh, policy focused way of looking at fairness. So if we look at this policy view or point of view, then I think that many things are important. I don't even know where to start, but uh, to mention one thing, this when we talk about this trias politica, which I men- mentioned early, earlier, a big problem there now is that, you know, the political representation uh, and also the judiciary does not have the right tools or and also does not is not being provided with the opportunity to look into the systems that are being used by the executive, so by the ministries and the municipalities, etc., and the government executive organizations. So these organizations are using algorithms, but not giving proper insight into their workings. So in the case of the system risk indication system that I mentioned before, the Ministry of Social Affairs didn't want to provide insight into the risk indicators or the source code of the system. And that made it very difficult for the judi- for the judge to make you know a proper judgment about uh, uh, whether the minister- ministry was well doing the right thing and doing you know, acting in a legal, uh, was, was respecting the law. But it also makes it more difficult for Parliament to control this executive branch, right? So if they don't have the right information about how the, the ministries or how the municipalities, this goes the same for local, on the local level. So the local representatives don't, are not getting the information they need in order to properly, uh, you know, democratically control the uh, the execution of, of policy in their municipality. Yeah, then we have a complete distortion of what, you know, liberal democracy should should be looking like. Also, many municipalities saying, oh, we cannot provide insight because we do this in collaboration with other municipalities or in regional collaboration, right? Or uh, coordinated from the ministry. And that's why we cannot provide transparency. So that's something that we can and should definitely be able to change, right? So we need to focus on how do we get this democratic control, how we how we can make sure that we have the democratic control we need and the transparency and the explainability uh, we need from those executive organs. Uh, and of course, you can have a very, you know, interesting conversation about what transparency in practice uh, looks like. You know, who is it transparency for? Uh, when is something called transparent? Is, you know, publishing the source code, is that already transparent? Or is it more about how you can explain how you came to a certain out- outcome? But we need to have that conversation. And I see that we are now sort of stuck in you know, this conversation on uh, why government is not being transparent but we and, and what the consequences of that are. But we need to go to a conversation in which we talk about, you know, what does transparency mean? How do we want to organize that? Why is it important? This is a great point of view to have, Laura. And unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our time together. But I'm going to ask you to come back to the podcast because... Exactly. I totally agree with you. And for our listeners, the first time I saw Laura uh, talking in public, you brought up a couple of really provocative points, and then I started thinking about them. And one of them has to do with exactly what are the concepts societally accepted, democratically uh, built, consensus find about transparency and accountability. Because this starts happening, this starts opening a can of worms. Because if we want to have in a liberal democracy and in democratic processes 
everyone's opinion, then we may get into a situation where things are not moving forward because we get into a freeze because there will never be consensus about what is transparency. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that EU regulation in this regard is very important. So we have this new uh, AI Act that the mm -hmm. European Commission has uh, proposed. And I think that act is very important, uh, but it's still well, for me, it leaves open some questions about, okay, how to organize this transparency in practice and who the transparency, you know, because there are some uh, proposals on transparency, which are in the act already. Uh, but it's still, you know, do, do, for instance, governments have to or explain the risk indicators in the system that is being used? You know, those are questions that are still a little bit open. But also, um, are, for instance, universities uh, getting access to, um, you know, what uh, the workings of those kind of algorithms, algorithmic applications? Or judges, you know, are they getting the right access to information? So there are still some questions that, well, I think are open, even if, you know, in a couple of years, we would have this, this new regulation. Yeah, one, one final thought on this one. But my question, Laura, and you saw me present this argument, which is the machine is working already and the machine is getting smarter and even more powerful. And either we stop everything on their tracks and have that larger discussion that you exactly mentioned, what are the parameters for the machine to work? Or we need the machine to be working. We need to have some parameters. We can have the discussion going through but it's, in my opinion, it's impossible to stop this system from working. And of yeah. course, people can say, well, we need transparency. And transparency needs means what? Knowing every single variable, every mm. single operation. Yeah. I don't know if we can get into that point. But that's just my two cents on the conversation. No, I agree. I think, it, you know, if you are not a coder, and I am not a coder, I you would provide me with a source code and I wouldn't understand it. So what does transparency mean um, in practice and how can we make sure that that is also being regulated and being enforced uh, everywhere? But accountability, accountability is another one because if you go to digital platforms and you say, hey, you guys have to be accountable for what, what you do, chances are they're going to shut the system down. Yeah. They'll be like, we, we're not going to get into that kind of trouble because if you're telling us what we have to do, and this is, as you know, Laura, not a very liberal uh, position to have, telling you know the private sector you have to do this, 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 and that, so that people. Oh, I think it's very liberal actually to create a market that is fair and efficient because it's not unfairness is also very un inefficient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, if we have discrimination, it is not very, you know, in all aspects, it's not not fair. And it's unlawful, but it's also definitely, I think, not good for any kind of economic development. That's a, that's a great point. I was thinking more philosophically about systems working. Mm -hmm. And if, if you develop a tool and then all of a sudden you have someone say the tool has to be changed because there's this consensus that the tool has to be changed. Yeah. Well, then make it a state run tool. But oh, this, yeah. this is another conversation. I've been talking with Laura de Vries. The book is Algorithms and Local Government, Opportunities for Everyone. And Laura, please tell us where can people follow your work? So you can definitely look at our uh, our website, um, uh, Stichting at uh, d66.nl. Uh, and the book is also available there. So you can just 
freely downloaded in PDF. Um, and of course, I mean, my name is Laura de Vries. You can follow me on uh, Twitter or wherever you like. Well, I'm going to put all this on the show notes, the, the booklet, and then how to follow Laura in the digital world with algorithms uh, choosing who's uh, who comes in the top of the list. So let's let's hope that algorithms bring your Twitter profile up. I'm definitely going to follow you on Twitter. I'm going to do that right now. Laura, this was a <laughs> fantastic conversation and there's much more to talk about. But for now, I'm going to thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of October. On the 28th of October, based in Brussels, we have the event A Europe of Values 3, Checks and Balance in the European Institutions. There's going to be an in-person event, but also online, and it will focus on finding solutions for rule of law and performance mechanism issues, with the aim to create a publication that will serve the policy and decision makers fighting to save the EU project. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>